This is a recording from the University of Virginia and the Engaging the Mind lecture series. On April 24, 2008, the outgoing dean of the UVA School of Nursing gave tips for being an informed patient. Jeanette Lancaster spoke to a crowd at Legacy Hall in Williamsburg about the active role that caretakers and patients can take in the hospital setting to prevent medical errors. Dean Lancaster suggests that medical error prevention is a joint effort through education and advocacy. It is uh, my great pleasure to be here tonight and to have the opportunity to introduce the Internet Lancaster as Althea said, Dean Lancaster is retiring this summer and we are very honored to have this view of her final speaking in her career here in the Central Area. Dean Lancaster became a Dean and CD County's Professor of Nursing at the University. In 1989, she's the longest tenured dean at the university, having held the position for more than 18 years. So, to try to summarize her accomplishments, uh, I have to be up far longer than any of you want to be up here. But uh, she has, with other colleagues, published over 50 articles in professional journals and presented more than 200 speeches and workshops around the country and internationally. And a few quick firsts that I think that you'll all find interesting. Uh, the first endowed nursing professorship in the United States was established at the University of Virginia in 1928 to honor Sadie Heath Cabinets, and Dean Lancaster holds that chair position. And another um, interesting first is that she is the first woman to be invited to occupy the University. So, without further ado, I'd like to invite her up here to share some tips on being in well, it's great to be with you tonight. Um, I have some experience on helping people be an informed patient. As Sarah was talking, I was thinking, hmm, in the last three weeks, I have inserted myself in three people's health care. Um, they just didn't seem to be doing what needed to be done. And I thought, if I get involved, I can at least get you the information you need. So that's what's of real interest to me, is that people know how to be informed, that you know how to be sure you're getting the best care. And it's not easy, and it's not simple, as many of you know. So stop me as we go along. Uh, I'm going to give you some tips. Um, you may think we're going slow. You may think I'm repeating myself. But if you hear it three times, you know I really mean that. That's important. Take that one home with you. So the whole goal is to help you and your loved ones stay, stay safe in hospitals. And, you know, as someone who's worked in healthcare all of my career, I believe hospitals are a good place. But they're also a dangerous place for those who... Uh, come to, to rest in with us. And I want to help you understand a little more than you may know about how to evaluate healthcare information. There's so much available, but I'd like you to go away knowing well, where is a good source for me to if, go to and where are sources that maybe I ought to just pass that by and save that for another person. So I'm going to talk a little bit about many of you who have been in healthcare know a lot about the Joint Commission because if you're in a hospital, you have to know a lot about the Joint Commission because if you're not accredited by them, you're not basically open for business because you don't get any federal funding. But they have a really super program called the Speak Up Program. And some of you have gone on their website and probably seen it. And I've actually printed out a few pages that I can show you at the end. But they've got a brochure for about every kind of question you'd want to know about how to get health care. So I think those are very helpful. When we're looking and thinking about our help, we do not need complex, sophisticated information. We need the most basic. It doesn't matter, I think, how much you know when it's your life, your family's life, your anxiety is high, and you need things in the most uh, easy to read and simple format to understand. 
the whole goal is to help those who give you the care prevent errors. I think we all understand and appreciate that people who go into healthcare want to do the right thing. Nurses and physicians and others never want to willingly hurt people. We all intend to do the right thing, to do the best we can, but we're all human. And there's probably not a one of us in this room in the last week who hasn't done something that we look back and think, ooh, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Or how could I have forgotten that? So, you know, remember, nurses and physicians are just like the rest of us. They forget things. They're tired. They're overwhelmed. And the other thing I want you to remember is you want, as a consumer of health care, to form a partnership with the person who's going to give you that care. You want them to find you a, an appealing person. You may be in pain and you may be mad, but you want to try to form a partnership so that they're going to want to do the best and so they will know how to communicate with you. Remember also that no one cares about your health and the health of your family as much as you do. You are your most important person, and so you have to remember that. For years, you know, I've always said we spend more time, money, and attention getting the annual and regular maintenance on our cars than we do our bodies. And, you know, we can always, if you have enough resources, buy another car. But, you know, this one body is all we get, and you can do a lot of repairing and tucking and uh, trimming, but, you know, you basically got the standard equipment that you were born with. So we're going to go on and on about safety and how we have a responsibility to ourselves. I used to think when my parents were alive that, uh, that they thought, you know, that when they went to the physician, they didn't want to bother him with facts. You know, he's so busy, he's got a lot on his mind. Well, yes, but <laughs> you should be what's on his mind right now, and you need to tell him everything that's wrong with you because physicians, as smart as many of them are, they are not magicians, and they can't read minds. So I want to, you know, us to talk about that and think about that. So remember, speak up with your questions. If you don't understand, ask. There is no question in anywhere in life that's too simple to be asked. Ask. You have a right to know. If you don't understand the words that are used, the part of the body they're referring to, the treatment that's being asked for, whether it's your physician, your nurse practitioner, your physician's assistant, whoever is directing your care, you have the right to ask. And pay attention to the care you're receiving. So many well-meaning mistakes have been made. You, you, know, you always see the jokes in the New Yorker about, you know, you go in for uh, the something to be, you know, your right arm to be amputated and they accidentally took off the left. Well, you know, those things do happen. One of my associate deans came to work the other day and she was going to have surgery that afternoon and she had big NPO, nothing per mouth, on her hands so that everybody would know she couldn't have anything to drink that day. And that's important, you know. Um, so pay attention to the care. Be sure you're getting the right treatment and you're getting the right medicine. And I'm going to tell you how to learn a little bit about that. Educate yourself about the diagnostic tests they're going to use, uh, the treatment plan. Why is the physician or nurse practitioner doing what he or she's going to do? People are often hesitant to get second opinions. But, you know, it's not offensive to get a second opinion. You know, if you were going to uh, buy a new car, you wouldn't buy the first one you saw. You're going to look around and make some decisions. So, you know, think about, do you need a second opinion? Is this just as straightforward as it appears? One of our uh, university employees was going to have surgery the other day, and he was telling me what he was going to do, and I was rather horrified, so 
I decided to ask one of our nurse practitioners, who's quite an expert in this field, what would you do if my friend was going to have prostate surgery? What would, what would be the questions you would ask? Well, the first question my friend told me to tell him to ask is, how many times have you done this surgery? How often do you do it? Well, the young physician we learned from my friend uh, was young, very pleasant, but he had only done it seven times. Well, you know, I'd rather have a little bit older person who's done it about seven times that week than seven times in total. I mean, I understand people have to learn somewhere, but maybe not on me. So, you know, how often has the person done it? What have been the, their success rates with doing it? The other thing, and I can't really um, emphasize this too much, is ask someone to go with you. When you go see your nurse practitioner or your physician, you may go to the person that is the nicest human being in the world. But there is no question that when any of us is feeling poorly and we go to see someone for help, we are not at our best. You know, your, your mind is wandering. You forget to take your list of questions. You can't even remember exactly why you're there. So take someone with you so that you, um, someone who can listen for you. I had a funny experience lately. I went to visit a friend, and uh, she was not well. And she told me, I mean, I could see what her symptoms were. She had vertigo. She had labyrinthitis. I thought, you know, I'm a psychiatric nurse, so I can really, I'm really clever at diagnosing things. Uh, but I just diagnosed her as having labyrinthitis. And she told me what the medication the physician was giving her, and it, she said he was giving her Valium. And I said, well, you know, that's just not computing for me. You should be taking something else. So I said, you, we're going to go back to the doctor. I'm going to go with you. And she, she then said, now this is a smart, well-educated woman. She said, well, you know, he scares me. And I said, well, he isn't going to scare me. And I'm going to have my list of questions in my notebook, and we're going to go, and we're going to find out what is wrong with you. So we go to the doctor's office, and I, I was trying to be polite, and I explained that I'm her friend, but I am a nurse, but, you know, don't, don't, shouldn't make too much of that. But I said, you know, have you thought that she might have labyrinthitis? And he said, well, I know she does. I said, well, had you thought about um, antivert? He said, well, yeah, I put her on it, but he put it on her for three days. I personally thought that was a little short. So then he put her on Ativan, which knocked her out. And um, I said, well, you know, we took a vote on the way up here, and we decided that if the choice was between vertigo and being knocked out, we're going to take vertigo. So he left, or he said, okay. But I noticed the whole problem was he was talking to her, she was talking to him simultaneously, and I was the only one in the room listening to anybody. And I thought it was like two ships passing at the night. They neither one heard a single word the other one said. And I don't think they either one realized they hadn't heard a word the other one said. So no wonder she came home with not a clue what she was taking. She had the medication all wrong. Uh, I really don't think he was doing his, his very best either, but uh, that was... We, we got that straightened out. But you do need to take someone who's more objective uh, and who can ask the questions. You know, I, I happen to know about labyrinthitis because my husband suffers from it. Wasn't anything I learned in school. I didn't know it was because I was a nurse. I've just seen it so many times that I knew what the symptoms were and I knew what the best medication was and I know it's not going to be cured in three days. So, you know, take someone with you. The person doesn't have to be particularly knowledgeable, but they have to be courageous and willing to speak up on your behalf. Because, as I've said, we are not at our best, no matter who we are. We're not at our best when we're a patient. Know your medications and know why you take them. See, my friend neither knew her medication nor why she was taking it. 
because she had everything confused and mixed up. And medication errors are, as you know, because you've read about so much of this in the literature, medication errors are the biggest problem in healthcare. And a lot of them can be combined. I'm gonna, or can be prevented. I was thinking ahead. I'm gonna mention this again in a minute. But one of the things that I think we must remind ourselves to do, how many of you take over-the-counter medications? Claritin, Tylenol, okay. Probably all of you, but some of you are just reticent. How many of you take herbal supplements and minerals and things of that nature? Do you always, when you see your healthcare provider, tell them exactly what is on the list of the over-the-counter you take and your herbal remedies and supplements? Good. And don't forget to do that because, you know, they may not know that, you know, we're taking 16 different supplements that are all in and of themselves very good and probably any one of us has an entire uh, cupboard full of the supplements that we take. It's, supplements are wonderful, but your physician or nurse practitioner needs to know what they are because they may interact poorly with the medication they're going to prescribe for you. So... Use a healthcare organization that has been evaluated as being a beneficial organization and that has good safety standards. Any of the places you would go to in this geographic area would fit that bill. Uh, it's very hard in most communities to find a place that hasn't been uh, certified as good by the Joint Commission because of the regulations. But remember, you, you are the center of your healthcare team. And you've got to participate uh, by paying attention, by listening, and by speaking up. Let me catch up with my, my notes here. So I want to talk a little bit about how to prevent errors if you're going to have surgery. Because this is something that in due course all of us will probably have this opportunity. Uh, and how to prepare for the surgery. Obviously, you want the right procedure to be done in the right place. That seems pretty, pretty logical. Um, there have been occasions when that hasn't happened. But you also want to think about what you can do to prevent infection and what are the ways to prepare for your surgery so that all goes well. Let me go over a few of these with you in more detail. First of all, if you're preparing for surgery, so here are some things to be sure to think about. When you go to see the provider who's going to do the surgery, ask the person, tell them about any prescription or over-the-counter medications you're taking, because some of those are going to need to be stopped a period of time in advance. And if you don't stop them in time, you're going to get there for the surgery and highly anxious and, you know, you've made a lot of effort to get there and they can't do it because you have substance in your body that are going to counteract and interfere with the surgery. Be sure and ask because, uh, trust me, people don't tell you all of these things as you might like them to, but uh, ask if you can eat or drink before your surgery and how long before. Um, write your questions down. This you might think this is rather inappropriate, but I was going to have a few years ago a colonoscopy, and those are just nasty, unpleasant procedures. And you have, this was, you know, when you had to drink that gallon of oil. And um, 
a group was having a party at my house, and um, there was all this food and beverage, and here I was drinking that gallon of stuff. So I called the hospital and asked. They said I could have clear liquid, so I called to see if, uh, if white wine was considered a clear liquid. <laughs> and the nurse said, she, I think she thought it was an odd question, but she said, well, yes, but you had to, I had to drink like about 64 ounces. She said, I wouldn't make that your total clear liquid. <laughs> I was only thinking of a glass. It, it, I wouldn't advise it. You know, the more you drank that stuff, the white wine was just wasted on that aftertaste you had. But, you know, don't hesitate to ask. People may think you're a little goofy, but you don't have to necessarily give them your name. You know, you can just sound pleasant and say, I'm having this, you know, procedure. And I just wondered. And maybe they won't ask who you are, and, and they see you in the grocery store and think, oh, brother. Um, so I've told you about taking someone with you, and you certainly want to have someone go with you when you have surgery. And then be sure when you come home that there's someone to help you. We all think we're going to recover in about three hours. And, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So be sure you've taken care of who's going to take care of you. Now, you may think this is a little basic and that all of you know this, but let me just remind you that before you leave home to go to the hospital, Take a shower, wash your hair. Now, this one may be uh, more interesting to you. You would have thought about the first two. But remove any fingernail and toenail polish because a real way to see how you're doing is to look at your nail beds. And if you've got bright red polish on, that's going to be a real problem. Um, obviously, leave anything that you want when you return at home. Uh, a lot of people come to the hospital with a lot of jewelry on, and a hospital is not a good place to be wearing jewelry because it, uh, you know, it's hard to protect it for you. You know a lot about signing an informed consent form, and I'm not going to go over that. Uh, people will ask you, and you, I'm sure you'll do the same thing as me. You know, I told you that three times. I'm still the same person I was five minutes ago. But the goal is to, of course, ask you over and over who you are so that they make sure they're not making a mistake. Uh, because, you know, if we've got Nancy here and Nancy there, we want to be sure and do the right surgery on the right Nancy. So it will seem redundant, and you wonder if they're intellectually competent because they've asked you that so many times. But it's better to double-check. Some of you remember the unfortunate baby switch that we had at UVA. And there might have been an opportunity to have asked more questions and have pre prevented that un uh, really awful uh, situation. Now, and some of you have had this experience, so you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're going to have a surgical procedure, generally you will have a, the place marked. So you'll get a nice red X or something. And that's important. Uh, a few years ago, I took my brother to UVA. Uh, he needed to have surgery immediately because his own doctor in Texas had just kind of blown him off, and he had a, a broken toe. And, uh, you know, the resident came in, and he was talking about the left toe. And I said, well, I don't know about what you're going to be doing, but it's the right toe that I want Dr. What's-His-Name to be operating on. Well, you know, they sort of, the resident just sort of had it confused which toe. Well, you know, that's kind of an important thing. So you need to have someone there that's making sure they mark the right toe. He didn't appear to be joking, uh, but he certainly was on the wrong side of the leg, from my point of view. So be sure that, you know, people mark it and that people mark it in the right place. Yeah, okay. Now, back to infection. Uh, you know, 
you've probably heard all you want to hear about washing your hands. But do you know that you need to rub that soap and water on your hands for 15 seconds? And 15 seconds is longer than counting to 15 because we count faster than a second. And it's really more the rubbing uh, mechanism than the soap. But you need to get the bacteria off of your hands. And if your hands look clean and you feel like you washed them just five minutes ago, then use one of those uh, hand wash sanitizers. But be sure you keep your hands clean when you're in the hospital, especially under your fingernails, because, you know, it just takes a little bit of bacteria when you're in the hospital to cause some very untoward effects because your resistance is already uh, in a poor place. And also, and you may think this is really rather elementary, but be sure to wash your hands anytime um, before you touch food, your food or anybody else's, but also after you take out the trash. You know, we, you know, we're busy and we take out the trash and we sometimes may forget to wash our hands. But our trash receptacles are usually not the most germ-free items in our home. They say the kitchen is by far more fraught with germs than the bathroom. And so the kitchen is the place you need to keep the cleanest. Um, so be sure you wash your hands when you play with your pet. You know, many pet owners would say that their pets are cleaner than them, uh, and that may be true. But your pet's often been uh, in the litter box or out in the yard and may have brought in something that you don't really want on your hands. So you, you can't overwash your hands too much. Um, this is one of the things that I'm sure you're a more enlightened audience, but we have, you know, we have employees and we all want employees in our organizations that are dedicated to the, the University of Virginia. But dedication becomes poor judgment when someone comes to work sick and shares the opportunity with everybody else. So, you know, you want your employees to be dedicated and to care about their work, but you don't want them to come to work if they're running a temperature, if they have the flu, or if they have something that's going to be rapidly shared with everybody. Um, let's see. Did you know that when you sneeze or cough, the germs can travel three feet or more? Have you ever noticed on an airplane that person three rows back sneezes and 24 hours later you got that whatever that person has? I'll give you a little tip about this. Now, some of my friends make fun of my travel tips, but I actually think they're very helpful. If before you board an airplane, and they're the most you know, congested where there's a lot of recycled air, put some sort of a... Um, like a Vaseline, or if you're desperate, pop your vitamin E tablet, or when we use, or your fish oil nowadays. But basically, you want to coat the inside of your nose and form a protective barrier, because then when the guy three rows back sneezes, it's not going to be your nose that catches that vapor. So think about that. I've tried it for many years, and I've had a lot fewer colds since I've been lubricating my nose with whatever. If you're really desperate, you can use your lip, uh, you know, your lip stuff. Just don't, you know. You need, to, you need to put a little on your finger. You, you kind of follow me conceptually there. But, you know, but you, know, you really get desperate. You get on that plane, and you forgot your little bottle of stuff, and so you look in your purse, and what have you got? And so you, it's better to use something that seems odd than to, to go without nose protection. So that's my personal tip for the day. Um, now, this one, I think, is hard. Uh, 
but I think it's important, but I think we, many of us would find it difficult. Be sure the person takes, who takes care of you has washed his or her hands. And you know, everything we read says, ask them to wash their hands. And I do think that's hard to do. But I think you do have a right if a person comes in to take care of you and that person um, hasn't washed his or her hands or doesn't put on clean gloves to ask, would they? Because um, there are people who casually count the number of individuals who leave the restrooms at the University of Virginia Medical Center without washing their hands. <laughs> And there, that does happen, unfortunately. I'm sure it happens at uh, Centara that people are in a hurry and they uh, take care of their personal needs without thinking of who they're going to be shaking hands with next. So be sure hands are a really big thing. Keep your medications in, on a card so that you can always tell whoever's taking care of you what you're taking. I know we all think that's a good idea, but it really is a good idea. Uh, I now, because I'm always trying to minimize the number of things in my purse, I have all of my frequent flyer numbers on one small piece of paper. That way I don't have to carry six airline credit cards. So if you, know, you would think if I could go to all that trouble and have all the hotels and all the airlines on one small piece of paper, I could remember to do that. Um, and you know, I think we do a lot of other things and we're so well organized, but sometimes we slip when it's taking care of the thing that might be the most important to you. So when you get a medication uh, from uh, the person who's prescribing it for you, be sure you understand what it's for. Uh, I've recently learned that pharmacists at the local places we all go to are absolutely invaluable sources of information. So you go pick up the prescription, you go home, and you start reading that you know, page of small print, and you think, huh, I didn't know that was for that. That's not what's bothering me. And so it's good to call and the pharmacist can say, well, yes, but it really is, it is treating the symptoms you presented with. That's not its primary responsibility. So don't hesitate to ask. Uh, be sure and read the written information. Have you ever, you know, taken an entire round of medication and after it was over you think, hmm, I wonder what was on that piece of paper? And, you know, 10 days later you read it and, well, isn't that interesting? It would have been good to have known that earlier. And so it's better to read it at the time rather than reading it later. And I've talked already, but it is so important to uh, take, I, I personally take them. Uh, what I'm, my herbal remedies, when I get a new prescription, I take them and, you know, set them all out. And the doctor or physician can say, this is going to work or this isn't going to work. I mean, you do feel a little stupid carrying a an entire tote bag and you lay out a whole string of herbal remedies and vitamins, but better to know and feel a little goofy than to have an interaction that wasn't the best one for you. Be sure you understand what the most likely side effects are. Now, with some of us, if we think there's going to be a side effect, we will definitely have that side effect. You know, it's that thinking ahead and planning to have that side effect. But it's good to know what would be considered a side effect of that medication so that you can stop taking it, you know, if anything is going wrong. Uh, be sure that you understand exactly how you're supposed to take the medication. I had a, now I was, this was a very long time ago when I was a nursing student and I went into this patient's room and I was going to give this gentleman a glycerin suppository. 
So I asked him, do you know what to do with this? <laughs> that was not, I would not have gotten an A for the day had the instructor been there. And he said, yes. Well, I took it at face value. And so I turned to go out and I thought, maybe I better look back. Well, he was about to put it in his mouth. Well, that is not exactly where a glycerin suppository goes. <laughs> so most of us would know a little more about where to put things. Uh, but be sure you find out if it's a pill. Are you to chew it? Are you to let it melt in your mouth? Or are you to swallow it? Because there are subtle differences in absorption time by you know, how, you, how you consume the product. Uh, be sure to find out if you can drink alcohol with the medication. I called the pharmacy the other day after I'd gotten a new prescription that said, never in this lifetime have a drink of alcohol with this. And I called the pharmacist. I said, how much is too much? And she said, well, you know, a glass isn't going to hurt you. But if I, had, if I had gone with just what was on that printout, I mean, I would have really been sad. I wouldn't have had any wine at all. But she said, you know, you don't want to drink, a, you know, a liter. But, you know, a little dab will be fine. So, you know... Read it carefully, but then inquire if you have a need to know or a need to try to, let's, let's make a deal about this. Also, be sure you get written instructions about both the names of the medicine and what they're for. Now, most of our uh, medical plans, our pharmacy plans, and the pharmacists uh, we go to give you really good instructions. But don't come away without some uh, medical instructions. Okay? Okay. Planning your recovery. We've now, we've, you, you are washed from head to toe. You've had your surgery, and you're just feeling dynamite, and you want to continue feeling dynamite. So here are the questions you need to ask as you are about to leave the hospital. And today it may be, you know, two hours after surgery. So you need to have these questions written down because you may be, you know, getting the busman's rush pretty quickly. Um, how soon should you be feeling better after you leave the hospital? You know, if, you're, if it's with that surgery normal for you to feel really bad for a week, you want to know that. Because then if you go home with the anticipation uh, that you're going to feel good the next day, you know, you're going to be really concerned about what's going on. You want to find out how soon you can walk, climb stairs, go to the bathroom, prepare meals, and drive. I had some head surgery a few years ago, and... I did think to ask the physician, um, I mean, he probably thought I was really not very bright, but I said, you know, can I go to yoga tomorrow? He said, is that the kind of class that you stand on your head? And I said, well, no, I don't stand on my head. I mean, I can't do that. He said, no, you are not going to go to yoga. And I said, well, you know, some friends and I are going to do a 14-mile bike ride. He said, well, your friends will be riding the bike, but you will not be riding the bike. But, you know, I thought, well, I feel, I feel really good. Why should what's wrong with my head affect, you know, my posture and my bike riding? But he said, you know, you don't want to shake everything up that I've just been working on. He said it a little nicer than that. So be sure to ask what your restrictions are going to be and what symptoms you should watch for. When should you know that things aren't going well? You know, we all understand that if you get a fever of 104, you are not having a good experience after surgery. But what are the other things that would indicate that things aren't going well for you? Be sure to ask if you're going to need physical therapy because that is often something that surgeons forget to mention. Um, and sometimes in your anxiety about yourself, you forget to ask. 
but most surgeries are going to require some sort of physical therapy. And it's generally better to have it right after the surgery than three weeks later when you're not feeling good and you begin to wonder, should I have had physical therapy? So be sure and ask about that. What's the next step toward in my recovery? And if you have wounds, find out how long the normal course will be for that wound to heal. You know, is it going to be a week, three months, six months? You know, how long is it going to take? So be sure and think about those things. I probably have more to tell you than you ever wanted to know. So let's skip over about being a donor, and you can we can come back to that if we have time. I'd like to get to the... Um, how to evaluate the internet, because I think that's something that's really a part of most of our lives. And I've got a handout out front of a lot of these websites that will be, they're very good, either government or the Joint Commission for Hospitals, places that you can get very reliable information. So we've, this is sort of, here's, here's what we've talked about. Ask questions, write things down, if you have a friend who's a nurse or a physician or someone who works in healthcare, see if that person can go with you. Who's going to help you if there's an acute crisis, something happens that you hadn't expected? And have someone to respond for you if the health event prevents you from doing so. Have someone who knows what you would want to have done. Okay. We've talked about all of those. Know what's really wrong with you. Know what your medication is, what the schedule is. Get second opinions if you think you need them. Be sure your wishes are followed. And let the healthcare team know that you are interested in your own health and that you're willing to be an informed consumer, but you want to work with them. So it really gets down to listen closely, ask people to repeat things, uh, if people talk too fast, ask them to slow down. Have you ever been listening to someone and you knew they were speaking English, but you couldn't understand a word they were saying because they were talking too fast? And I think that's a particular problem for us who are Southerners. You know, we talk slow and we listen slow. And sometimes people talk so fast that we can't, we just sort of miss the whole point. So don't hesitate to ask. Okay, how can you use the internet wisely? What are some of the things that are on the tip of your tongue about how to use the Internet? I'm going to ask you to, what, what have you been thinking about, about the use of the Internet? Yep. Really, almost every question you want to know, you can go to the Internet and find good information. First of all, you might want to find out, you know your diagnosis. So given this diagnosis, is the plan of treatment what is the logical one? Is the, if it's conservative treatment, is that the best course of treatment? Are surgery the best? Or are these medications the right medications? What are the side effects? Um, what are the benefits? So those are all very good things that you can find, but I'm going to tell you how to know that you're finding the right information. Okay. Remember, Anyone can put information on the web, and many of you are familiar with Wikipedia, uh, but Wikipedia has no peer review. You know, tonight we could all log in and uh, put information on there. So you want a website that has some review and is written by people who know what they're talking about. Um, 
in general, about half of the information that's available on the web has been reviewed by a healthcare provider. The other half is written by other people. So you want to be reading the half that's written by the healthcare provider and that has uh, credibility to it. Be aware, too, that websites have a lot of jargon, so they can often be difficult to read. Okay. So what do you, you want to know if this is a trustworthy website. Well, how many of you get the AAP, AARP magazine? They did one of the best articles on this subject in March and April of 2007. And the article is entitled, Well Connected. And it really had some of the best information. How do you find up-to-date, accurate information on the web? Well, what you do first is you avoid your favorite search engine. Because if you go to AOL, uh, Google, uh, MSN, that is getting you information, but it is not peer-reviewed information. So what you want to find out is, let's say you've gone to a provider and you've been told that you have this condition. Ask the provider to give you a prescription for web the website. That is, what would be, based on what's wrong with you, a credible website? And then, what would be the key terms to search for? Because, you know, what you key in is going to direct you better. But uh, nurse practitioners and physicians will know the websites based on your diagnosis that would be most likely to have the best information. And don't be fooled by a beautiful, highly sophisticated website. Not, not that there's anything wrong with a sophisticated website, but you want to learn who sponsors the website. And so there will usually be a link on the website to who produced it. And so what you want to look at is who produced it. Generally, any website that ends with GOV for government edu for education, or org, which would mean that it's generally written by a nonprofit. Those are going to be some of your most uh, reliable. You also want to find out when it was last updated. You know, if it's a gorgeous website, it seems very informative, but it hasn't been updated since 1993, keep going. You know, medical information in 1993 is historical. I mean, right now, I mean, the world is changing so fast. And check more than one website so that you get some cross-analysis of how accurate what you're learning is. If you see the same thing in three reputable websites, then you can pretty well say, well, that's, that's really the facts. But be very careful about that. Now, two websites that are kind of like the gold seal. You know, these would have the consumer report stamp of a good product. And... This will be on the podcast, but one of them is called it's www.hon.ch. So it's www.hon.ch. And that is Health on the Net, and it's a Swiss nonprofit that does this website. But it will evaluate other websites and give you some indication of which ones are good. And then there's another one in the United States, and it's www.urac.org. 
and that is also considered a very good place to go to get indication of the accuracy and reliability of a website. Now, the next tip on uh, the website, go ahead to the next one, I've covered some of these. <clears throat> you want to, and some of you will understand this concept very well, you want to follow the money. Who benefits from having that website? For example, who are the advertisers on that website? So if it's a company that is advertising a product and you're reading an evaluation of their product, you know, you need to be suspect. So ask yourself, who would make money from the sale of the information about the products on this website? So just remember, follow the money and know who sponsors the advertisements. And also, if you go into these websites, try to find a, a link, a click that will tell you that you can disallow them to share your health information with any other site. Because if you don't disallow it and you've provided some information, then you have allowed them to share your information. And you might have more email traffic than you, you ever wanted. Discuss what you've learned with your provider. I mean, they're always interested in uh, learning new things, but they also need to know what you think you know. And many times they will say great information, and other times they'll say, you know, that's really not the common treatment for that, that problem. One of the best websites is the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. They have really uh, very current information, and that's an easy one to get into if you want to know about what you should be doing. Okay, that was fast, but do you have questions that I didn't think about? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's by who sponsored it, and if it's a government or an education, it would have to have been under, undergo some sort of peer review. Um, there's a good website, but you need to know who has written the information called WebMD. And a lot of people go to WebMD to look for information, but you want to find out who wrote the information. Another very good one is the Mayo Clinic. So if you go to the Mayo Clinic website, you would know that that has been approved by the Mayo Clinic. The Centers for Disease Control, uh, any of the NIH. Uh, things like... Um, any of your very uh, sophisticated nonprofits, like the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society. So, you know, look at sort of the good housekeeping seal of, seal of approval on the name. You may not know exactly, some of them will list who peer reviewed it. You know, and if, if the physicians were, of course, UVA or Johns Hopkins or a good institution, you could think, well, you know, they probably know what they're talking about. But you want to be sure that the person who put it up there and has, has produced it has the credentials to be saying that. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, well other than praying. <laughs> uh, 
you know, there are really a lot of options. Uh, if, if you have, if you're in an accident or, I mean, obviously we would hope this would never happen to us, have a gunshot wound or something that you can't predict that it's going to happen. Obviously, you've got to go to an emergency room, and clearly they take the sickest people first. Um, and, and you'd want them to if you were the sickest person. But if you're just, you know, if you're really feeling crummy, but you don't think you're about to die, uh, look at one of these prop care. You know, they can usually see you much faster than you could be seen in an emergency room. And, you know, find out, uh, you know, is, does your physician or nurse practitioner have call after hours? and find out where they would suggest you go. An emergency room is it's a difficult place because the waits are almost always long. Uh, they're, you know, nowadays in any hospital, no matter how good they are, we, you know, we have to board patients in the emergency room, and people may be there for a day or two because there's no bed for them to go in. Uh, so the emergency room should really be what the name implies, emergency but a lot of people go there because they don't know where else to go. But see if in your community there, there are any other places to go. If you go to the emergency room, you know, that, you know, if someone comes in with burns or a gunshot wound or something that's really very life-threatening, they will be taken before someone whose symptoms lead the staff to believe you're not going to die right then. They, you know, generally emergency rooms do a good job of triaging, but, um, you know, where the sickest go first kind of thing, just like in the military. But, um, but very few people have a great experience from what I hear in an emergency room. It's not something you want to brag about in terms of, wasn't that just swell? <laughs> does, that, does anybody else have better ideas than to go see if there's a clinic that's open, see if your provider has someone on call in the evenings who will meet you at the office? Uh, those of you who are practicing nursing and medicine in this community, yes. Yeah, that's an excellent suggestion. And if someone's not breathing, that can be very serious. So you do need to, you need, you know, if you're, if you're feeling bad and you think you're, you know, going to deteriorate, say, by 5 o'clock on Friday, call your, you know, call whoever takes care of you before the weekend. You know, don't go into the weekend feeling badly because a lot of times it'll just take a call that people can tell you what's going on in your community, like what virus or what bacteria is around. And you may not need to be seen. But if you do need to be seen, it's better to be seen before 5. But you're right. With something like that, the best approach would be to have 911. Because they, they, in that case, they had better entry. Any other suggestions that I haven't thought of? Uh-huh. Okay, he did. He was first. <laughs> Do you still have a question? I don't know. Uh, I would call your pharmacist. Uh, there, I, there probably is a good website, but I, you know, I think a pharmacist would know what it is. But generally, they should be able to tell you. Um, and you know, the, the pharmacy I go to is very, very busy. But if you talk to one of the pharmacists on the phone, you have their total attention. And that you know, so that's what I would do is just call. I wouldn't go in necessarily because you might stand in line for a half hour. But, you know, or if you, you know, if, if you can get in. But yeah, ask how close is this generic? Because it might be 90% close, but you may be willing to pay if your uh, health plan doesn't pay for anything but a generic, you might be willing to pay the extra to have the extra 10% of benefit. And if anybody has a better answer than me, speak up. <laughs> 
Yes, and I, I health brains, health grades. Yeah, there is a grading system. Um, uh, what she the question was: Is there any place you can go on the web to find out uh, how capable your physician is? And Cindy Allen said, health grades, so it would be www.healthgrades. Yeah, I use a, a real old-fashioned technique. I call a nurse who practices in that area to find out who's the best physician who does that kind of work. Um, because you want to see some, you want to ask someone who sees them day after day and knows their, their competency. And you, you know, and, but you know, you don't all live next door to a nurse in the specialty area that you're interested in. Yes. Uh, get back to credibility. Right. <laughs> uh, I think that's a time when I would use check three references on the same topic because, you know, some of them are not credible at all. Uh, but let's say you're reading about this particular uh, health problem on this physician's website, then I would go to something like the Mayo Clinic or one of the ones that's, you know, very well known for its accuracy and see if it says some, the same thing. Because some of them are really very self-promoting. And so I, I personally would be careful of an individual's when there's so many corporate, you know, I'd go first to a Johns Hopkins. The Mayo Clinic has one of the best health guides. <laughs> Well, it depends on what your symptoms are. You know, Lipitor, Lipitor works for a lot of things, but there's a point at which, you know, maybe you don't need Lipitor. You know, there's some thinking that after a certain age, everybody's cholesterol is going to be high, and Lipitor is just, it's not going to do any good. Well, you know, one way, this is sort of biased, uh, but remember what school I'm with. You know, you could always go to a good nurse practitioner who has really very little to gain from the kind of medications you take, and find out what would be the actual number of, what, which medication should you be taking? But I would get a couple of opinions. Um, you know, there's a, a new breed of physicians and nurse practitioners that only deal with people over, say, let's say 55. And, you know, you wouldn't take, a, you know, you wouldn't take a five-year-old to a a, do a doctor who deals only with, or a nurse practitioner who only deals with adults. Well, what we're finding is those of us who are over 55 really ought to be cared for by people who have a real understanding of that population. So I would, you know, I would do that, um, you know, fi find out, because one of the biggest problems is the over-medication. You know, you hear stories about this all the time, that people are over-medicated, that, you know, no matter what your presenting symptom is, the cure might be medication. Well, it might not. You know, it might be lifestyle change. Uh, sometimes, you know, you could do well with, you know, diet and exercise could take the place of Lipitor. But yeah, I would get a couple, I would get a couple opinions. Does that make sense? No, uh -uh, I just think you have a choice. 
And uh, you know, we at my we educate nurse practitioners, so I I believe they you know have a lot to offer. Nurse practitioners aren't as aligned with pharmaceutical companies, um, but but you know we all have known over our lifetime physicians who were absolutely fabulous, and uh, they would not give you a medication that they didn't believe wasn't just right for you. But you know, it's always good to double check to be sure, you know. You know, why are you giving me this? And is this the only alternative? Not very. But <laughs> I'll give you another reason to not feel secure. I was working on a book chapter yesterday on environmental health, and I had this article about the lead content in inexpensive costume jewelry and how most, many of us who wear inexpensive costume jewelry are wearing jewelry with as much as 80% of the content is lead. And this was about, it was talking about children. And children have so much, uh, they're so much more um, susceptible to toxins. And yet children, you know, fool with costume jewelry they wear. And it might be even costume jewelry made for children. Or they play dress up. And, uh, you know, I had never thought about lead being in jewelry. That just never came up on my radar screen. But, you know, I was, I was looking for something about all of this uh, information about lead in toys. But who would have thought lead in jewelry? So, I, you know, I think, I think it's a serious problem. Uh, you know, fish is a problem now um, because fish is contaminated and the medication and now jewelry and... Um, yeah, what's that train that, the, you know, the, the toys that kids have? To, yeah, Thomas the Train, you know. Though, uh, that, I just use that as an example, but it's been a lot of the very reputable toy makers. So, now, I don't know. The pharmacist, you know, yeah. And if you're getting a generic, you know, it, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, you almost feel like Sherlock Holmes about your own, you know, your own health. The food you eat, the water you drink, the pills you take, you know, tracing them down, you know, through their, from the beginning of the raw materials to the day you get it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, are we running out of time? Okay, good. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> I will. We were talking about um, the various items that have uh, contaminants in them, and we were talking about how it's so easy to, you know, you, the, the product may be made in one country, but then it's assembled, or the raw materials are in one country, the assembly's in another country, then it's shipped back to this country. And there's so many more and more items that they're somewhere along the chain of uh, production, uh, a contaminant. Yes. Right. And, and heparin, you know, it's, that's not a, a, a medication that you take lightly at any rate. Um, whew. If, if my crystal ball were a little more fine-tuned, I'd make a million. <laughs>
Somebody asked me that question the other day. It was for a newspaper article. And um, the, the question was, if the nursing shortage that we're predicting occurs, what's going to happen to people? Well, people won't get health care in a timely fashion because hospitals cannot admit patients if they don't have nurses to take care of. And some of us are old enough to remember when hospitals had closed beds because they couldn't get nurses. They're, you know, and so hospitals obviously don't want to close beds, and most hospitals are working at full capacity right now. But that would be sort of the worst case scenario, is you just can't get the care because there's nobody to deliver it. And hospitals are at, they're at great risk if it, of admitted, you know, hospitals would not want to admit patients if they do not have the personnel to care for them, because that puts the hospital at risk. So I think the, you know, the only solution is to, it's not totally producing more, but it's keeping those we produce in nursing. Um, and a lot of that could be adjusted by the employer looking at different ways to interact with the employee. Um, there was a wonderful article a couple years ago, and, and it, was, it was in this area, I think it was in Newport News, it was an article about a nurse who was 72 and still working. And in her 50s, she had determined that she could not physically work on an adult medical unit. So they moved her to the newborn nursery. So, you know, say you can't lift 250-pound people, but you could take care of eight-pounders. And so that was a great use of keeping a nurse actively engaged in nursing in a place that fit her, her capabilities and her interest. So I think, I think employers, and it's, it's not easy, but employers are going to have to look at shorter shifts. These 12-hour shifts, I mean, I don't even know how young people can be at their best for 12 hours. Um, and, you know, we all, if we're going to have surgery, want to be the first in the morning before the doctor gets tired. <laughs> uh, but I think shorter shifts, giving people more options, uh, using people in age-appropriate uh, locations in the facility. Uh, but I think part of it is retention. Um, I still hear, and those of you who are practicing, I, I hope you would dispute me, but I hear from practicing the nurses that there is still a lot of harassment in the healthcare environment. And it's not just what we typically think of, you know, physicians yelling at nurses, but nurses can be very unpleasant to one another, and they make the work environment more difficult. And so I think work environments have to have a uh, no-tolerance policy that I will not allow Cheryl to shout at Lori in the hall in front of a patient. That is just not acceptable in this institution. But people say that one of the reasons they leave nursing and medicine would be the same, um, is the work environment's not a good place. But on the flip side, if you look at the AARP uh, evaluation of some of the best places to work for people 55 and older, many of the healthcare systems in this country rank in the top. I remember uh, I read it a couple years ago, and the Bon Secours group was at the very top because they were very thoughtful about the use of employees 55 and older, and they had you know, gotten uh, big awards. And I think it was maybe the Henry Ford system in Michigan. But So I think it's going to be, we can continue producing them. As one of my dean colleagues says, that when the nurse execs in her town say, how many more can you produce? She said, what did you do with the ones we gave you last year? You know, where have they gone? Uh, I think it's going to be 
a different situation to some extent with physicians. Uh, well, there, it's this whole generation of young people have a different relationship with employment than many of us did. Uh, I was talking to a, one of the man on our board and asking about his wife, who's just become a, a, a dermatologist. And she works two or three days a week. And that's wonderful. I mean, I would agree, that's wonderful. But as we see a shortage of physicians, and we have new physicians coming out and working two or three days a week, um, there'll be less opportunities to have medical care. And, and nurses want the same things. People do have a desire to have a, a life that's not, you know, three twelves. So I think, it's, I think it is a difficult situation, but I do think we have to look at how we can retain those that we produce. Um, and most nursing schools have so many applicants. The number of people who want to be a nurse is just astounding. And most of us can't take nearly all of the ones that are really qualified to come because we don't have enough faculty. And without faculty, you can't admit students. Um, and that same is going to happen in the medical school because the faculty in both nursing and medicine, you know, are a little past their prime. And they're looking toward retirement. And uh, the pipeline is not quite as robust as the retirement trajectory. Theoretically. Um, but, you know, some of the national health insurances have some barriers so that you don't you don't get everything you, you might want we, we you know we if we if those of us who have insurance can get a lot of things some things we don't really need but we want but yeah I think it's a long shot to think that we're as a nation going to get clever enough to figure out how to provide health care to everybody I think if we could provide some level that would be highly desirable yeah oh yeah yeah you That'd be wonderful. You know, many other countries are doing far better than we're doing. When you look at the statistics on the amount of the gross national product that's spent on health care, the, 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 the grossest indicators of health care is more mortality and, and morbidity. Those are pretty gross. You know, you're either really sick or you died. Uh, but infant mortality is a rate. So the, the indicators are pretty rough indicators. But no matter what indicators you look at, we're paying the most of any country and we're getting the worst outcomes. But, you know, many of the European countries are doing well. The Scandinavian countries, I understand, have very good health care. One of our faculty is um, Swedish, I think, one of the Norwegian countries, uh, one of the Scandinavian countries, and she has an uh, aunt and uncle who are older adults. And so as they have gotten older, this, the government has come in and redone their uh, home so that everything is age appropriate. You know, the commodes are higher, the counters are lower, and the government is taking care of making their own home age appropriate and livable, which will be a lot less expensive than having them in a long-term care facility. And most people much prefer to be in their own home as long as they can be. I'll tell you this one funny story. We have a lady, um, her name is Grace. And one of our employees met Grace. They go to the same church. Grace is 95. And Grace comes and gives a lecture to our students. It's in the class on mental health nursing, and it's on mental health of the older adult. And Grace comes and talks to the students. And the class is called Aging with Grace. And she is one feisty lass. 
<clears throat> so the other day after class, Grace said to this employee that she knows from church, you know, I've been here the last three semesters. Could I have a title? She said, you know, could I have a faculty title? I'm, you know, I'm teaching regularly. And we said, well, sure, we'll give you a title. But, you know, that's, of course, what we always want to be is like Grace. We want to be at 95, independent living, alert, witty, I might add, nice looking, slender, <laughs> all of those things that some of us aspire for. But, you know, she has, she has lived, uh, you know, her life to, to keep, she's just probably got very good genes, too. But one of the things she told the students, which, you know, these are undergraduates, and they are just so captivated with her, is that, you know, she'd had people had come in, and they'd looked at her home, and they had told her what she ought to do away with. And then she went back to her house, and she looked at it, and she said, small throw rugs, I love them. I'm going to keep them. I know I might fall on them, but they're mine. Small dog, I like small dogs. So she knew that she had some elements of the way she was choosing to live her life that were not in her best interest. But she said, I have made an informed decision about the advice I'm going to take from well-meaning health care providers. And uh, so pretty, you know, pretty interesting people, and there's a lot we could learn from. But I think you're right. Things look a little less bright, but uh, the good news uh, in both nursing and medicine is the people who want to study these disciplines are just as smart as can be, and so they will intellectually have the capacity to do the right thing, and what we have to do is find a way to keep them doing the right thing longer. Uh, one of my colleagues is, uh, well, Pat Woodard knows her and Cindy Allen knows her, Billy Brown. She's a principal in a search firm that does only nursing searches, and she is one lively woman, and Billy's 83. And she's saying, I've, I've got to take, I've got to slow down. Uh, but you know, and we all want to be like that, that at 83 is bright and energetic, and I've known her for a long time. She has never looked so good. And so, you know, there is, we have the capacity to live longer and better, but it's, it's not easy. Okay, anything last, last minute questions? Well, thank you. You've been a great group. Thank you. You're welcome.